0: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is one of the true jewels of American comedy. He has won every award there is to win, but beyond that, he's just a hell of a guy. uh, And in comedic circles, is beloved by people that truly know the genre. And I'm talking, of course, about the great Alan Zweibel. So welcome, Alan. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you. Great. So Alan, I, I, we're going to talk about the movie and the book. And uh, as you said, somewhat jokingly, it's been a good pandemic the last year for you. Um, but yeah, I, you know, <laughs> look,
1: let, let's put it this way. As a writer, when there's no pandemic, right? When everything is hunky-dory, I wake up in the morning, make coffee, go into my office at 5.30 every morning, and I write. During the pandemic... I woke up every morning at 5.30, made coffee, went to my office and wrote. So, for somebody who, whose living is made in a sort of solitary fashion, okay, when you're writing, uh, and I know all writers have been saying this, well, uh, it's, um, yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible, horrible, horrible in a thousand ways, you know, but... I said that jokingly because my daily routine was, by and large, the same. Right,
0: right, right. Interesting. Yeah. No. Listen, you are uh, lucky, and I think for a lot of people um, have had a similar experience. I think you know, certainly people in the live business who have been stopped in their tracks. You know, different experience.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, look, certain things like Zoom. You know, I had a when my when my book came out, I had. I want to say 22 or 23 cities booked for me to go to and, you know, go to theaters. Um, Louis Black was going to interview me here at the 92nd Street Y. That that holds 900 people. Out in uh, Beverly Hills, Larry David and I were going to be in conversation in some theater out there that held about 1,100 people. And all of that got wiped out. All of that got wiped out because there were no live appearances. So everything became a Zoom, you know. And so for every one live performance you can give in front of an audience, I had to do five, six Zooms that reached the same amount of people. And look, the good news was you didn't have to schlep back and forth to uh, airports, you know. Uh, The bad news was, you know, I'd be looking at the audience and I'd see women knitting guys right. <laughs> eating sandwiches and stuff, whereas in the theater, they're just looking straight ahead at you. But, um, you know, we all may do. And looks like we're all getting through the other side.
0: Yeah, no, definitely light on the other side of the tunnel. So, Alan, there are so many places to start um, with you, but I thought uh, we might start with something that's coming up later this week that I know you've been very involved with, and that's Gilda's Club. And later this week, I think there's another benefit, I guess the first of the next 25 years celebrating Gilda's Club. It's always something, a concert. Uh, And I know you were very close to her, that you wrote for her going back to SNL. And I know you've been just so centrally involved in Gilda's Club. So I'd love to talk about your relationship with Gilda's Club and your relationship with Gilda.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. When I started, when we started Saturday Night Live, um, Gilda and I found each other. We made each other laugh. And um, I wrote for everybody back then, you know, the Samurais for John Belushi and uh, a lot of Weekend Update and tons of sketches. But Gilda, more than anyone, um, we, we made each other laugh and um, we wrote a lot of things together for her, you know, including some of her more popular characters like Emily Latella and another one named Roseanne Rosanna Dana.
2: This past Thursday was the Great American Smokeout, a day that everyone in America was encouraged to stop smoking cigarettes for a 24 hour period. Here to comment further is update health correspondent Roseanne Rosanna Dana.
3: Smoking. Now, I'm depressed, I gained weight, my face broke out, I'm nauseous, I'm constipated, my feet swelled, my gums are bleeding, my sinuses are clogged, I got heartburn, I'm Frankie and I have gas. <laughs> what should I do? <laughs> Mr. Fetter, you sound like a real attractive guy. <laughs> you belong in New Jersey.
2: Our
1: friendship became a very, very deep one where it um it succeeded snl when we left the show yeah it was difficult because she moved to california and back then there were no you know emails or anything like that and the, the three-hour difference made a little bit of a uh, it was a problem because especially she was shooting a movie and was on a set but when i went out to do um it's gary Shanling's show i created the show with gary Shanling. um I jump-started my friendship with Gilda. And and in fact, when she got cancer, her last television performance was on its Gary Shanling show. So um, she was Aunt Gilda to the kids, you know, and there's pictures of her in the kids' albums. And she and Gene Wilder showed up when I would ch- at the hospital when our children were born. So yeah, it was very, very um, close, okay? And when she passed, uh, right before she passed, she belonged to something called the wellness community, which was a center in Santa Monica, California, where fellow cancer patients was a support community for cancer patients and their families. And I know that she looked forward to it. She felt vital again. She felt uh, she was among peers. Forget about that. She was Gilda Radner. She was a fellow cancer patient. And when they founded Gilda's Club he, here in New York, a woman named Joanna Bull, Jean Wilder, I want to say Mandy Patinkin, and Joel Siegel, um, I I jumped on board right away. I figured that if Gilda had two legacies, one would be her body of work, com- comedy wise, but if she knew that a place like this was named after her she would be thrilled. So and now I can't believe it's 25 years, they're celebrating its existence, and they have uh, a celebration, I think on the 19th of um, of it, you know, so there's uh, musical people, I, I, I think Sting is performing, and um, they asked me to do something, and I was sort of like a consulting producer, uh, but, it, you know, Mark Krantz, uh who we both know from the Friars Club, sure. produced it. And it's a big... Um, so the fact that a quarter of a century has passed since the founding of this is just mind-boggling. But I think she would be really, really
0: pleased if she knew that this uh, place existed in her name. Yeah, no, and it's an incredible lineup year after year. I think you honored Emma Stone last year, who we've we've spoken with before. It's, it's just... Really fantastic, and what a legacy.
1: Well, you know what it is, um, Matt? It's um, a tribute to her uh, comedically because you had these generations that came later who realized they wanted to do that. When they saw Gilda, oh, I want, that's my idol, I want to do it, that gave them hope, made them laugh. And also, you combine that with the fact that everybody is touched by cancer one way or another, So um, they want to um, be of help. They want to contribute one way or another. That's why you get the Emma Stones and the people that you do. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, they uh, honored Amy Poehler and then uh, Melissa McCarthy. It's usually a woman in
0: comedy, you know? Right, right. Just fantastic and a, a, a great lineup again. So these iconic characters, Alan, let's not gloss over them. Your early work uh, at SNL, going back now close to fifty years, you created oh some of the <laughs> some of the most not quite fifty, uh, but you created incredible iconic characters that have stood the test of time. What was it about those early years uh, that have risen above? the legacy of television comedy in the last, you know, 45 some odd years, and really stand as a solitary work of art in the genre?
1: That's a wonderful question, Matt. There's a couple of things that uh, contributed to that. One was Lauren Michaels, uh, the only rule that we had was let's make each other laugh. And if we did that, we'll put it on television. He insisted, and he was right, that there was a um, that there was a baby boomer generation out there that was not being spoken to comedically. Let's make each other laugh. We'll put it on TV. People will like it and tell their friends. So it was late night, which was a relaxed um, state of um, when it came to censorship, if you will. There, and also look at the terrain back then there was no cable there was certainly no streaming. There wasn't even Fox when we started ABC, NBC, CBS, that was television. So, uh, the options were minimal and we were doing something a little different. So the fact that we were left alone, if I remember correctly, NBC in its prime time lineups was was such a dismal third place. They just left us alone and uh, Lorne was right. Um, We turned a few heads and they told their friends and it became what's it? 46 years later now.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's amazing. And you were 25 years old at the time, Alan. I mean, that's uh, incredible. And all of a sudden you're winning Emmy awards and you're creating characters like John Belushi, Samurai, like uh, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana that today are still part of pop culture in 2021.
1: Well, the fact is, you know, John came to the um, show with the Samurai character. This is funny. And the first Samurai sketch was written by a writer named Tom Schiller. He did Samurai uh, Hotel. And then, and it worked, it was with Richard Pryor. Before I got the job at SNL, I was writing jokes for stand-up comedians who worked in the Catskill Mountains. They were paying me $7 a joke, and I was doing such making so much money doing that, that I had to supplement it by taking a job in a delicatessen on Hillside Avenue in Queens. So Lauren walks by my desk, a few shows after the Samurai Hotel, and he said, uh, you worked in a deli, right? I went, yeah. He says, do you think you can write Samurai Delicatessen? I went, oh, you bet. And then he walked away and, well, okay, now how, how the hell
3: am I gonna do this? And now, another episode of Samurai Delicatessen.
4: Can I have a sandwich, please?
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, right.
3: I'd
4: like to have a combination cold-cut sandwich, very lean Good the Good beef, and a cream soda. Good uh, yeah.
1: So I did Samurai Deli and all the other samurais that came afterwards. I think it's attributable very much so. Look at these, the talent of John Belushi. He he was able to make you laugh by raising an eyebrow. Yeah, he would grunt when he's swinging a sword. But look at the face, how expressive it was. Look at Gilda. Look at the versatility of Lorraine Newman. You know, uh, there was... Um, th- their training was um, second city. Their training was groundlings, which are improv groups. So they were very adept at making characters, uh, creating characters and improving and all of a sudden a scene would be born right in front of you if Dan Aykroyd just started ad Libbing. So I think the the ingredients of all of these talent, you know, Lauren described this, I remember very early on, we said, what is the show going to be? He said, it's going to be a comedy variety show. But then he explained it further. He said, that means that it's going to be a variety of different kinds of comedy. Okay, so you had all these different sensibilities. Mike Lodoni was one of the writers. He founded the National Lampoon. I was a joke writer for Catskill guys. You couldn't get two people who were more diametrically opposed than that. You had uh, Marilyn uh, Miller, who wrote these really heartfelt, uh, poignant pieces. Everybody um, brought their own sensibility to it. And he established this palette where everybody could be heard. So if you didn't like this sketch, hang on, maybe you'll like the next one, you know. Fantastic.
0: So we were talking before about the National Comedy Center up in Jamestown, which I know you've been very involved with, along with Louis Black. And when my son and I were driving home, there was an old billboard that was, uh, you could barely see it. It had fallen, was on the side of the road, and it was for Kutcher's Country Club, which is long gone. Yeah. So uh, you started uh, at least some of your earliest roots go back to that era and the Catskills is largely gone today uh, from what yeah. it, it, it once was and I know there's been talk over the years about gambling and and bringing in some of it back but uh it's all effectively gone talk about that era and what a training ground that was for you as a writer I know a lot of the stories in Laugh Lines, Your Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier, the fantastic book, um, has a lot of these stories. But while we're talking now about it, take us back to that time when you were writing, you know, jokes for seven bucks a pop.
1: Well, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, the Catskill Mountains was the breeding ground for comedians. They had all these hotels, all of uh, which had uh, nightclubs, you know, and they would have these comedians. And many of them went on to become famous and have their own TV shows. The Buddy Hackett, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, Tony Fields, Red Buttons. That was where they started, okay? And um, they became very famous and had their own television shows. They moved out to California. By the time I got there after college, they were all gone. Who was left were the guys who were, oh, I would say the uh, the blue-collar aspect of those guys, the guys who would do two, three shows a night, uh, go from this hotel to that hotel to that hotel. And um, by and large, they were not going to become stars, okay? And the reason they weren't was they were all very, very good comedians, all really nice guys. They treated me wonderfully. There was nothing distinct about them. They were joke tellers, okay? So there was nothing you took home with you after you saw the show. It was only until years later when I wrote for a guy, let's say, like uh, Rodney Dangerfield, who said, I don't get no respect. Well, there was a character there. It was easy to say, uh, have him say... Uh, Even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She said she liked me as a friend. Okay, that was a character talking. These other guys were joke tellers and very proficient. You get a guy like Freddie Roman who can walk into any room in the country and kill. All right, but there wasn't a character there. So in the years before me, that was the first job that a lot of the guys on the East Coast got writing for these comedians. And when these comedians got TV shows, they asked those writers to go to California and write their television shows. I, that wasn't going to happen with me. Because like I said, the people who were left were not, uh, your comedy was changing. You started getting into the storytellers. You started getting into the David Steinbergs and the uh, Bill Cosby's and Woody. People were talking. They were telling stories that had jokes embedded in it, and they were writing their own material. So the age of what I just described, if you were writing for Red Buttons when he's up there and you got a TV show, he took you, that wasn't going to happen. What it did teach me, though, is how to write a joke. And one of the attractions that Lauren had for me when he hired me was joke writing ability. He knew he was going to have a, a a segment on this new show called a weekend update, which was by and large jokes about the news. So, um, I had to graduate a little bit to sketches. And it didn't take long because I had, you know, partners like Gilda Radner and John Belushi, where I saw what they did and how they did it. But, um, You know, it was the joke writing that got me uh, the job on the show.
0: Fantastic. So the Catskills were a breeding ground, but you also come from another great breeding ground. And I know your roots uh, are both at Brooklyn and Long Island. Um, I grew up very near Hillside Avenue too, by the way, Uh, Ah. and also worked in a a deli. Uh, But Brooklyn is uh, the ultimate... I guess in uh, The Old Honeymoon, as they would say, the Aberdeen proving grounds for comedy in this country in many respects. And uh, I'd love to get your reflections. You're from there, Larry David, Larry Charles, Mel Brooks, so many people that really define the modern genre of comedy. What was it, Alan, about that little place uh, that produced so many brilliant comedic minds?
1: I, I, it's a wonderful question. You know, Woody Allen as well. And, um, you know, it just goes on and on. What If you look at the history of the immigrants and they came over from Europe, they settled on the Lower East Side. They settled it. They, then they moved into Brooklyn. I think it was a mindset, Matt. I think that, you know, um, it was a way of looking at the world. Uh, here you had um, uh, Brooklyn. It, it allowed you, it allowed you uh, to um, to fan those fires, to look at the world, what it was, you know, and then when I moved to Long Island, I was only there until I was eight. And look at Long Island, look at Jerry Seinfeld is from there and, uh, you know, um, it, it keeps on going. Um, your, your, your friend, Billy Crystal. My friend, Billy Crystal, lived five towns over from, from me. You know, Carol Leifer is from there. I want to say, um, was was it, not Chris Rock, but you know, it keeps. It's every so often they'll do the funny people from Long Island, and there you had that generation. It was the it was the next generation after my parents, right? Who now the American dream is that was to have your own home. Most of them was built, uh, paid for with the, on the GI Bill, and they had something called leisure time. And they had crabgrass and carpools and, and neighbors who were living next door. And uh, I think that we from Brooklyn, especially the ones who moved to Long Island, we just, I don't, look, it's nothing that was in the water, but I think I think that the European heritage that we all had gave us a point of view to not take things so seriously okay or to look at the fun look at fiddler on the roof you know they were cracking jokes while anatefka was burning down okay i think that um there was a mindset it's the best thing I can say. And the fact that you got somebody like Mel Brooks, who was Mel, Melvin Kaminsky, who worked up in the Borscht Belt, and he was a drummer, was he not? And then the, it, it was it was a way of looking at life because if you didn't look at it that way, you, you were going to be oppressed, you know, especially Jewish people who we were kicked out of every country in the world so we made fun of the czar you, you, you punch up okay right. monty python right. the queen okay other people the church so or the president or whatever and i think that that was uh, i think brooklyn and then long island
0: uh it nurtured that kind of uh mindset fantastic so you had this great great run at snl multiple emmy awards um and uh, you then go on i mean there's nobody there's nobody who has the resume that you have alan you go on and are part of and co-creator of some of the greatest things that we've seen you know since the mid 70s when you joined snl i'm talking of course about shows like its gary Shanling show and and uh, we'll get to curb and and some of the stuff that you've done with larry david but did you imagine when you were, you know, making a corned beef sandwich for somebody on Hillside <laughs> Avenue, you know, did you dream about that, or were you as surprised as anyone by the path that you took?
1: You know, something that's a wonderful question because when I wrote the book Laugh Lines, when I looked at it objectively, what I was writing about the people I've got to know, work with, and become friends with. Over such a long period of time, in particular, my idols, the fact that we had Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks over our house for a Seder, you, you know, know—I'm going, wow, this is weird. This is cool. Um, was I able to envision? No, because I didn't know what the possibilities were. I, I didn't know what the possibility, you know, interesting story. I think it's in the book that the week that I got the job on SNL. I was also got, I got a job writing the questions and bluff answers for Paul Lind on the Hollywood squares. And, and, and I'm going, I have a dilemma here. Okay. Because that was an established show. It was the West coast. It was prime time. You know, this, this 1130 to one on Saturday night, who's Gilda Radner, who's John Belushi, you know, but I knew that it was the sensibility I was looking for as far as it's Gary Shanley's show is concerned. I had no way of knowing because there was no such thing as Cable. So the timing was right. The, the timing, I believe it was the first or the second comedy series made specifically for Cable. So that was virgin territory, you know. And when I met Gary, it was like lightning striking again. When I had with Gilda, I now had with Shandling. Uh, we got along comedically. We, we we got along really well as, as friends. And um, they said they had enough faith in saying, okay, deliver us a show. So Gary and I did what we did, and the sky was the limit. And um, I'll tell you what it did do. It spoiled me, okay, because between SNL and then later the Shanling show, I didn't know that there were rules. I knew that there were rules, but I was unaffected by it. So when I started doing other th- uh, things like for CBS or um, places that were a little bit more at that time traditional, you'd go, well, wait a second. You know, they were more formulaic. I, I wasn't, I was, I didn't do well. And there were great shows. There were great shows like, uh, uh, you know, Cheers and uh, Murphy Brown and Ally McBeal. I was, I I was around a little bit. Okay. So, um, but it was, it was a, uh, a very
0: fertile landscape that was unplowed. And they said, okay, do what you have to do. Fantastic. So we'll get to a little more about Gary Shandling, which was give or take 10 years after you started at SNL. Um, but one of the things that uh, strikes me about your career is you've worked with everybody. And I saw some stuff early on a Paul Simon special, a Steve Martin special, something with the Beach Boys. Looking back on that part of your career, and I guess this would have been the early 80s, any special memories from that period? Sort of in between SNL and Gary Shanley. Well, okay.
1: Um, The Paul Simon special happened while we were doing SNL, and the Beach Boys happened while we were doing SNL. We we were on a roll, okay? So the show starts in 75, um, it was a 75, 76 season. Lorne asks me if I would like to help write a Beach Boys special. That was the summer of 76. It was the bicentennial. So me and Belushi and Aykroyd joined Lorne out in California and we're basically living with the Beach Boys and we're going, look at this, okay? What did I step in? The Paul Simon special happened, I think, in 79. So it was my next to last year, I believe, on SNL. Lorne and, uh, and Paul were, were good friends, and um, they had this idea for a special. They wrote it, and then they were having a little bit of problems with the script. They asked me and Al Franken and Tom Davis to come and do a special material for it. And originally, we weren't even on listed as writers. We were listed to additional material by... This is Lauren's big heart, because when the show got nominated for a writing Emmy, he changed our credits to written-by credits. Um, what I remember about that experience, I mean, look, growing up, where I did on Long Island, and we're from the same, you know, shtetl sort of, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, the fact that they would call the house, you know, I, I I just couldn't believe who I was with, where I was with, what doors were now open. I'd go to Elaine's and see, you know, there's John Updike, and there's Gay Talese, and there's Woody Allen, and there's all these, it, the world was open. And then, um, what was the, oh, Steve Martin. Now, Steve Martin came after. SNL we ended I left the show in May of 1980 I think the Steve Martin uh, special was in November of 81 I want to say it was a live special for NBC the night before uh, Thanksgiving so that Wednesday night and so to a degree it was a reunion because a lot of us wrote for the special and it was fun doing live TV again and to this very day, I miss it. I, you know, Matt. These days, I write for the stage. I write movies. I write books. And if I'm lucky, they see the uh, light of day two years from now. A live TV show. You can write something on Monday and it's seen by millions of people on Saturday. You can write something on Saturday and it's seen that night. You know, when I was with SNL, there would be a dress rehearsal. You go through the whole show. That audience leaves. It's decided which sketches are going to be in this show. If your sketch was in, you tweaked it, you shortened it, you brought the changes to cue cards. And if there was any time, I'd go upstairs to my office, watch the 11 o'clock news. They didn't have 24-7 back then. And if something struck me as funny, I'd write a joke, it would be on television 20 minutes later. I was with Joe five years, and there were two times that while they were on the air live doing Weekend Update, I was under the desk writing jokes and handing it up to them. It's the biggest rush in the world, you know. So um,
0: I hope I, I answered your question. Yeah, no, that was absolutely fantastic. No, absolutely fantastic. And, Alan, even just talking to you now, you really see that what people say about you is true that there's a humanity to you, and uh, it's so clear why people that really know comedy love and revere you as much as they do. The same can be said about someone that you were very close with, and I think his humanity often is not... Gone into as much as it should be, and that's Gary Shanley.
2: Next Sunday, it's a special Gary Shanley show when hilda Radner returns in her
0: first
4: network television appearance. Are you looking into the camera now?
2: And now that she's back, she's breaking
4: all of Gary's rules. If I see a tape of this show, and you're looking into the it's Gary Shanley show next Sunday.
1: Wow, yes, yes. When I met Gary, like I said, we hit it off instantly. Matt, when you have a writing team, a comedy team, there's enough of you that's the same, that attracts you to each other, where you make each other laugh. But there's, let's say, 20% difference between the two of you. So the alchemy gives you a product that neither one of you could have done alone, okay? It's, it's that kind of thing. Gary and I were very, very similar, But, whatever gene or component of my makeup that allowed me to get married, it's 41 years now, three children, five grandchildren, Gary couldn't put that part of his life together, okay, whatever the reason was. So his comedy was very much about being an outsider, was very much about angst. He was incredibly smart. He would look at the world and um, he would have his own brand. He would, and that's a very hard thing to get is a voice of your own. It's just like those Catskill guys. They didn't have a voice of their own. Gary, not unlike Jack Benny, not unlike people who preceded him who had a persona, Gary was like that. In his private life as a friend, he was a mentor. He would have these basketball games at his house on Sunday afternoon that I played in. And whoever was in town played in it. He had a basketball court. And so let's say the game was scheduled for noon. I'd get there about a quarter to 12. And there would be these young writers sitting on the floor. And Gary would be in a chair talking to them. And this is writers like Judd Apatow when he was just starting out. A guy named Ed Solomon who... Uh, who wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and all the Men in Black movies. And they learned from Gary. And with, and let's say the game was over by three o'clock, I'd leave and they'd go back. Gary was a mentor. Gary paid for people's medical bills when they didn't have insurance. But Gary was understood and beloved at the same time. You mocked on a curve because he was not without his quirks. He was not without his demons. But when he and I ended our show, we weren't talking. Okay, we did 72 shows together, and we sort of grew apart creatively. Um, I'm married at this point now with three kids. I was commissioner of our son's Little League. I wanted to write about that, I because that was my life experience. Gary was still pretty much the single guy who was looking for dates and very clever and, and and whatever, but his scope wasn't as broad as what I wanted to write about. We weren't talking until we came back. We always ho- kept our home on the East Coast. We came back to Jersey. My wife, Robin, saw that he was appearing in Atlantic City, and she called him, and she said, listen, I'm coming down to whatever hotel it was, uh, and I'm putting the two of you in a room, and you're not coming out until you're friends again. You've been through too much together, and that's exactly what happened. But but I got to tell you something. We started becoming friends again, but we weren't working on the same show, so I, I had to be the one to exert the effort to make contact. We weren't going to the same stage or the same offices every day. And um, we were getting close again, getting close again, getting close again. When Judd Apatow did that two-part HBO special about Gary, okay? Yeah, I was in the first one because chron- chronologically, that's when It's Gary Shanling Show came. But when I watched the second episode, yeah, I knew about the Larry Sanders show, but I didn't know how heavily Gary was into the spiritualism. I know he had a bent that way. He he was in The Crystals before it became Vogue. He He had a cabin up in Big Bear where he used to go and meditate. But I didn't know the extent of it. Judd asked me to come out, which I did, to eulogize him at his memorial in L.A. And after every funny person, whether it was Sarah Silverman or Kevin Nealon or whoever, there would be a guy in robes. You know, talking about Gary's spirit. So, what goes unnoticed about Gary, which is wonderfully put by you, is we knew the character. We didn't know the person. We we didn't know the person. He didn't make it public. And like I said, it was only when I saw part two of Judd's um, special that I went. Okay, now did Gary always do that, or did this come about after we left each other? And um boy, to this very day, um when I'm writing, there's a part of me that has Gary up here. All right, how would Gary do that? What would Gary say about that? He was there, there are certain people who um exceed the role. Lauren Michaels is one. Um Norman Lear. I used to hear these stories about Gary Marshall. Uh, His his sister Penny and I were very good friends. What Gary Marshall would do, like on a Monday, he would sit with the writers at a table and there would be a pile of unsolicited scripts, let's say, or resumes. And he would say, okay, whose life are we going to change today? And he'd go through it. Okay, so here are people that knew their power. They knew the opportunities that they they could provide. Um, The fact that Gary would pay people's, like I said, medical bills. um, He was, like I said, he was not without his demons. He was tough. He was tough. He would call you in the middle of the night to talk about a joke. He would call you uh, at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And uh, after he looked at an edit and go, well, why was that a two-shot? I go, Gary, you couldn't call it 10 o'clock? It'll still be a two-shot. I can answer you better then. Uh, so he, his life was his work. And a lot of people ask, why didn't he do anything after the Larry Sanders show? I could be way off here. I could be way off. But my gut always told me that he was so devoted to his work, and he was so into it and and focused on it that it became um, not only his life, it overtook everything. And I don't know if he wanted to exert that kind of energy again, to go back into that kind of pool. He did it with the show we did. He did it with Larry Sanders. And I don't know, either. maybe there was nothing he was that passionate about, or maybe he started looking around and said, maybe there's another way I could live. You know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that.
0: But I remember him with a fondness. Fantastic stories. And and those shows also stand the test of time. So let's go, I want to talk about here today, but let's talk about a near 50-year friendship with Billy Crystal. And uh, I loved, and we got to see it a couple of times through another mutual friend of ours, Eddie Micone who was involved in 700 Sundays. Yeah, we got to go a a couple of times and absolutely loved it. Um, And I I think you won a Tony Award for that as well. Yeah. Um, Talk about Billy and the road, the long road over many, many decades to the film that's in theaters right now here today. It's, it's,
1: it's It's probably one of the things that I hold dearest to me when it comes to my career, because Billy and I started out almost the same week at catch a rising star, the showcase comedy club in New York in 1974, he had been part of a trio and now he was going out as a single comic and we met and we liked each other. And, um, I lived with my parents after college in Woodmere, Long Island. He lived with his wife, Janice, and their then uh, baby, um, Jenny, five towns over in Long Beach. And Billy had a little blue Volkswagen. And he'd pick me up every night. We'd drive into the clubs. And I, I was a comedian for 10 minutes, okay? I got tired of writing for those Catskill guys. So my plan was to take the jokes they wouldn't buy from me, go up on stage with the hopes that somebody would come in, like a manager or an, or an agent, go, oh, that's good. I want to represent you to help you get a job in TV. For me, it was a means to an end. Billy would pick me up. We'd go to the city. We'd tell our jokes. On the way back, we'd listen to our cassettes, give each other notes as to how the new material was working. What if you said it this way? What if you wrote it that way? And... um That's how we both started. Okay, I got SNL. Billy went out to California. He did soap. He had his own TV show. And uh, all the years that we had, that he was Uncle Billy to the kids when we moved to California, when I was doing the Shanling show, and then this, Matt, what are the odds of this? We had a suite at Castle Rock Entertainment. I shared it with Billy Crystal Larry David and myself, three offices with a common suite and a bathroom. Castle Rock, one of the owners was Rob Reiner, who hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever. So there were times where the three of us would look each other, at each other, and go, well, how did how the hell did this happen?" And but still Billy and I had never worked with each other. He did quite well without me. okay, <laughs> He did well. And one day he knocks on the door, And he says, listen, I'm thinking of doing a one man uh, Broadway show um, called 700 Sundays about my family. Would you like to collaborate with me on it? And I said, you bet. And for anybody listening, uh, what 700 Sundays was uh, Billy's dad worked six days a week. He had Sunday off and that was their day to be together, to go to a ball game, to go to Long Beach Boardwalk, whatever it was. And his dad died suddenly when he was, uh, Billy was 15, so he calculated that he had roughly 700 Sundays with him, hence the title.
2: There were two things I really wanted to be. A stand-up comic, or a New York Yankee, or a really funny New York Yankee. <laughs> Sunday number one, I'm born. They tell me that I was a rather difficult birth. Billy, don't take this personal, but your mother didn't sit down, you were 12 years old. I didn't take it personal. Sunday number two, my circumcision. This I took personal. Who's going have a waffle with me? Anybody wanna have a waffle? Hello, how are you? Leonard, get the car. We're down 55 points. The coach then turns to me and says something that actually scares me to this day. Billy, go in. Are you nuts? There's a game going on here. <laughs> Men always name their cars after women, don't they? And they talk to them, just like they're women, especially early in the morning. Come on, baby, turn over. <laughs> My grandmother once said to Louis Armstrong at a Seder, Lewis, have you tried
1: just coughing it up? What was great about that whole experience for me was, here was my friend trusting me with his family. People I had not met. I didn't meet his parents. I didn't meet his grandparents, aunts and uncles. Yeah, I knew his brothers, but not well enough. Uh, The story was basically about his family and extended family. And he trusted me with them. He trusted me to put words in their mouths, to make up scenes that could have taken place or expounded on um, things that he would just mention and go, oh, you know, that could be a little vignette or something. That was, for me, it's always the process. That's what you remember. Uh, you know, the product, you put it out there and people will like it, dislike it timing, this, that, pandemic, whatever. That's in the hands of a different God. But you remember the process, what it was like going to the studio every day, what it was like going to the theater every day. So that was, yeah, the Tony Award was uh, a jewel in the crown, but you remember the process. We didn't work together again for quite a while, uh, but still there were saters and there were dinners and he his wife janice and my wife robin good friends and then one night i told an anecdote as a guest on the letterman show and um it was a true anecdote that happened to me billy called the next day he said why don't we take that anecdote and make it the first scene in a movie between an older writer and a younger woman and let's see where it takes us and we did And here we are, I don't know how long Letterman has been off the air, but add six months to that, it's probably when I was a guest. And here we are with a a, um, movie that's in the theaters. To write this script, we did this long distance. Okay. He lives in LA. I'm here in Jersey. There was no pandemic, but we were separated by a country. There was no Zoom even. So we would call Maybe we'd FaceTime every so often. Okay, you take these three scenes, I'll take the next three, and we'd email back and forth. And we finally had a script, and we wrote uh, what became the Tiffany Haddish character. We wrote it generically because we didn't know who was going to play it. We knew that Billy would play the older writer. We also knew that he would direct the movie. So that's a that's a real present that you give a co-writer because. He'll tell me how he wants to shoot something. So I'm writing towards that vision. Okay. Um, one night he calls me. Oh, pardon me. He calls me on a Sunday morning. He says, did you watch SNL last night? I said, no, I DVR'd it, but I'm an old Jew at this point. I usually don't watch it until Monday and sometimes not until Tuesday. And I, uh, he said, watch it and i watched it it was the episode that tiffany haddish hosted she blew me away and she won an emmy award for it and he said let's try to get her so what was written generically we now try to tailor it a little bit more specifically for somebody like tiffany with her rhythms and the energy that she had and um we got the script to tiffany and I believe that there were two factors that were uh, very much tipped to scales. One was she wanted to work with Billy. Okay. So that was like a dream of hers and wow, here was the opportunity in the movie. Billy's character has the onset of dementia that was written because my dad was going through it and Billy had an aunt who was going through it. So we gave it to the character who's writing a book about his deceased beloved wife. He's struggling and he wants to finish it before he loses all his words. Tiffany has a grandmother with dementia and she's a caregiver that way. So there was an emotional tug. So the confluence of all of this, um, she attached herself and um, herself. And boy, you saw the movie, her energy and the synergy between the two of them is so powerful, first becoming friends, and when she realized what's going on with him mentally and his disease, you know, his affliction, she becomes his muse. So um, it was one of those things. But I, I I applaud Billy because he was the one who said, let's go
4: after her. Thank you for bidding on me in the auction. I am so flattered that somebody your age would be a fan of my work. I don't know who the hell you are. My ex really wanted to meet you, so he bid. How much? $22. $2,200? That's fantastic.
0: $22. It started at $20, and then it went up in 50 cent increments.
4: I'm a comedy writer. All right, guys, very funny stuff. I also write for Broadway and movies. Why is your face suddenly bigger than it was before? Oh, my God, are you allergic to seafood? Oh, my God. She doesn't have insurance, and she really shouldn't be leaving here by herself. Your daughter is going to be fine. Why did you tell the doctor that I was your father?
0: I was a little loopy by then.
4: Are you doing anything right now? No. Want some laughs? Come on, queen, smile, girl, smile. Marilyn Monroe from The Seven-Year Itch.
0: Mm. I'd be you too if I had hot Subway or blowing up my ass.
4: Doctor, thanks for seeing me so late. How's the writing going? It's all of these young kids. In the tradition of George Carlin and Richard Pryor. Somebody's got to talk to Roger about his inflections. Come on, sub peanut. What, what is that, a very small peanut? Are you doing what we talked about? I try not to vary my routine. You have medicines to help you. I was backed up for like eight days. And You can always give yourself an enema. I'm saving that for my birthday. Who are they? That's my family. If they're your family, why do you have their names written down? Charlie, you can't be alone anymore. If you ever need my help, I'm here. I'm writing something, and I have to finish before my words run out. I'll take care of them. May I ask what your relationship is? I don't
0: know. I don't know. The traveled, the yeah, and similarly to what when we were talking about, Gilda Radner, all of us have been touched by cancer, and sadly, the same is true of dementia. And, and, I, and I thought the line that you had, I'm sure this was, you know, very well crafted and purposeful, I'm writing something I have to finish before my words run out. And I thought that was such a poignant piece of writing. In my case, it was my mom who passed last year and didn't know who anybody was, you know, including me, her only son. The last five years or so of her life. So, um, you know, I'm very sensitive to that. And I thought the touch that you and Billy gave to it was um, was just perfect. And it was funny, but there's so much heart in the film. And I think the chemistry with Billy and Tiffany is just beyond.:
1: what well, we were very vigilant about, and I take that as a supreme compliment, Matt, what we were very vigilant about was to have respect for the affliction, not to make cheap jokes, not to make any okay, any of that. It was all about the integrity that, like you said, everyone one way or another has been touched by cancer. We are now old enough where people a little older than us, our parents, even some of our contemporaries are starting to get this. And um, I know with my dad, uh, we would FaceTime him. He was up at the Hebrew home for the aged and uh, couldn't go visit him during pandemic. So it would be FaceTime. I know that he didn't know who he was talking to. He wasn't even talking, you know, so I know what that's like. So Another line, and both of the the line that you just mentioned, I think Billy wrote, there's another line that Tiffany says, I think Billy wrote also, Billy is telling her, Tiffany's character, about his deceased wife and um, their history. And he gets a little tired at one point and says, um, oh, I'm going to take a nap. He wants to stop the story. And Tiffany says, no, 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 please don't take this with you. Okay. And I, you know, I've seen the movie a half a dozen times, and um, that always gets me. And I, I, and it it always gets, don't take that with you. Leave it for us. Get it out. Let us appreciate, you know. So like I said, there was great
0: care that was taken um, to be real. Yeah, no, it it sure was. So you talked about the process of writing with Billy um, on opposite coasts. Uh, I've been lucky enough to see you at the Friars Club many, many times where you sit often uh, alone with a yellow pad writing. Uh, I'd love Alan to take us behind the curtain about what's going on at that table where you're sitting there with your own thoughts, whether it's writing one of my favorite books, The Other Shulman, which won the nation's highest award for writing in, I think it was 2006. Uh, and my one of my best friends, Paul Weinstein is such a fan of yours. He's been on me for, for months and I finally went out and got it before uh, this opportunity to talk to you came up and I read Laugh Lines. And I thank Paul for telling me to go and get it because I haven't enjoyed a book as much as that since the other Shulman. But I'd love for you to to take us behind the curtain about what's going on when you sit down with that blank yellow pad, whether it's at the Friars or anywhere else, and you're starting to create something.
1: It's Well, it's a wonderful question. It's... um... Usually, there's an assignment. I know that I'm, oh, I got to get this story down. I got to get this, got to write these scenes down. But, you know, Neil Simon, many years ago, in the Sunday section of the Arts and Leisure section of the uh, New York Times, wrote a piece where he described the comedy writer as a two headed monster. The first head is talking to Matt right now it will go to an ATM, it'll get stuck in traffic, it will, you know, have a tooth pulled. And then without provocation or announcement, another head will emerge and it will hover and make fun of the life (laughs) that this head is living. I subscribe to that. And so if I'm sitting there with a legal pad, I'm there, but I'm somewhere else. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm there and I'm thinking... I don't know, you know, it's interesting, brought up Larry David's name before, you know, to this day we all carry a little pad and we write down something that strikes us as funny and um, we'll, we'll be out to dinner. And if something happens, which is obvious, like a, a waiter drops a tray, everybody will take out their pad and write something, put it back in and continue the conversation with Larry. All of a sudden, apropos of nothing that's happened, He'll take out a pen and start writing. And we all go, what did we miss? What happened? (laughs) Okay. So there's, there's, it's such an internal kind of discipline, Matt, where you're so inside yourself. You're inside that other head where um, The Other Shulman is a book that only I could have written by myself because it was so... Not only personal, but it was in the, the inner workings of a man' uh, had what he was going through, and all, comedic, but at the same time, um, there was they couldn't be collaborated. Okay, same thing with um, uh, you know with laugh lines. Well, it was my story, but when I'm sitting there by myself, whether I'm co-writing with somebody who's not there at that moment, or from just there by myself. It's such an internal thing where the place could catch fire. And someone would have to come along and go, Alan, there's flames. You may want to think about leaving the room. It's all the way in there. And it was funny because that Neil Simon thing that I told you about, I made my wife Robin before we got engaged. I made her read it to show this is what you're going to be living with. And boy, did she get a baptism, Matt, because... You know, we got married, we got our first apartment, and I would be home. I wasn't that SNL anymore, so I had a home office. Um, and I would be sitting there on a the couch like this. And she'd come in, let's say, from Costco with these big boxes and things and schlepping. And she would say, can you help me? And I'd go, can't you see I'm working? I'm <laughs> like this. And for me, it was, that's the work. That's the heavy lifting. So um, it's wordplay. It's sitting down with your vocabulary. Uh, What order am I going to put these words in that will hold interest and maybe get a laugh? Uh, And if you're writing for a character, what does he or she sound like? All right, to put that into this person's mouth at this particular point does that work? So there's a, it's, the mental process is grueling. I have to tell you that at the end of a day, yes, I wake up at 5 30 to start my work. Okay. Sometimes the day ends at 11. I'm spent. Now it's 11 o'clock in the morning. I put it in a full day. Okay. Whatever the end of the workday is, whenever, uh, uh, whatever time, So tired, not from physical exertion, just spent. And I don't know any writer who is different than that. Whatever it is that they write, Philip Roth, you know, Joseph Heller, you got got the greatest novelist of all time.
0: At the end of their day, they were spent. You know, it's grueling. Amazing. That was great, great insights. So you mentioned, uh, talked a couple of times about, larry david and i know you were very involved in curb but you also were involved there not only behind the scenes as a writer but also as a character on the show what was that like and i know you've done other things as well in front of the camera but is that something that you enjoy doing uh and and reflections on that which i you know a couple of my favorite episodes are the ones with you he um I would, I would bug him
1: every year. I'd say, all right, listen, this is my yearly call. I'll fly myself out. I just want to be in it. Okay. I'm tired of seeing other people that we both know be the waiter or the thing. I said, they were shooting here in New York a number of years ago now. And he called me up and he says, all right, I think I got something for you. I go, what? He says, your name is going to be Duckstein. So right away I'm sold. Okay. Okay, fine. I'm Doug Stein. We're both from California. We never see each other out there. We find ourselves both in New York at the same time. You want to have lunch with me. I don't want to have lunch with you. That's all he told me, Matt.
3: There's no script. That's all I knew. He'll pick up some food to go, David. Okay, one second. Okay. Larry? Larry, hi! We're uh, both in New York. Yeah, we're both in this, New York. Look at this, two Angelinos here in New York. That's something w- What it are is... you here for? Hey, you know, I just came. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's a thought. Let's go to lunch tomorrow. Mm. Mm. I don't think so. Okay, Thursday. No, I I I don't think so. Why not? Well, we don't really see each other in LA. So why if, if we're in one city all the time and we never have lunch in that city? Why would we have lunch in the new city?
1: Well, I see what this is. I we, see don't, what this we don't is. have lunch You're together. you still holding LA. a grudge because
3: we didn't invite you to Joni's Bat Mitzvah. You'll never forgive me for that. No, no, no. I'm telling you, we sent it out. You were on the list. I did get the invitation. Yeah. Yes, and I paid so little attention to it that I didn't even bother to RSVP because I shouldn't have been invited in the first place. I was offended that I was invited. So let me get this straight. I'm going to eat alone. I'm going to eat alone tomorrow. Why do you want to eat with me? Because we never get a chance to eat in L.A. Because we're not friends. We're not friends because we never spend time together. We don't spend time together because I don't want to spend time together. Is it possible that you have a little room for growth? No. Dougstein, I think we've taken this about as far as we can. There'll be no lunch, no breakfast or dinner. There won't be a snack. There won't be coffee. There won't be a drink, and hopefully there won't even be another bump into. I feel badly for you, because life is like this. Yes. And what you've done is made it like this. I want to make that smaller. Really? Yes. Shrink it, shrink it, put the hands together. That's what I want. See you, Duxtein. Bye, Larry. I said, okay.
1: Now, for me to play somebody that somebody doesn't want to have lunch with is not a stretch. You've seen me eat. It's, it's not a pleasure. Okay. So we go to a Japanese restaurant where he's shooting downtown in the village somewhere. And I'm seated there. Larry comes in. I recognize him. And I reintroduce myself to him. I say, listen, look how we are both in New York at the same time. <clears throat> Why don't we have lunch? He goes, look, we both live in L.A. and we never have lunch. He says, why should we have it in New York? I said, well, this will give us the opportunity. He says, well, I said, we both never have time out in L.A. He said, did it ever dawn on you that we never had lunch because I don't want to have lunch with you? And we just started riffing like that. They must have done eight takes that took over a half hour. And when you see that scene, because there were three scenes all together, uh, but that scene, what was it? Maybe a half hour of footage became two and a half minutes. What was it like? The hardest thing was to not make each other laugh, okay? Because it was like every phone call I've ever had with this guy since I met him in 1974. Larry David is on a different plane than the rest of the world. he whole um, think of things where you go, wow, wow. Chandling was like that. There was a guy who wrote on SNL named Michael O'Donoghue. Same thing. He founded the National Lampoon, like I said earlier. Different. Larry, when I was a comic for those 10 minutes, if I were to follow him on stage at the improvisation, there's usually 20-minute intervals. So if he would go on at 9, I was told to I would go on at 9.20. But if I was following Larry who went on at nine. I made sure I got there at nine. Why, you ask? Larry would get on stage on a Friday night. Back then, he had hair, like Larry Fine from The Three Stooges, Brillo, wire-rimmed glasses. He wore a a Green Army fatigue. I think he was in the, uh, you know, in the the reserves, said L. David on it. And he's looking at this crowd blue-haired ladies from Jersey, men with pastels and leisure suits. And he'd look out at them and he'd go, "Um, I feel very comfortable, you you people, tonight. In fact, I feel so comfortable, I'm thinking of using the to form of the verb instead of usted. Now, I'm sitting in the back, I'm laughing my ass off. A, I think it's really funny. B, the audience is looking at him They're like an oil painting. They they, they don't (laughs) know what to make of this. So usually when a comic hits a roadblock, especially right out of the gate, you shift gears. Oh, maybe this will work. Not Larry. He just kept on going. He said, I think a lot of people misuse the two form of the verb. He says, "Um, when uh, Brutus stabbed Caesar, Caesar says, A2, Brutus? And Brutus said, Caesar, I just stabbed you. If there was ever a time for his stead, it's now. Well, I'm dying back there. The audience is like tumbleweed going up and down the aisles, and Larry would go, oh, to hell with all of you. He'd go off the stage, and I'd go on at 9.01. That's why I'd always get there early. I'm to this cool. day, look at Curb Your Enthusiasm. Nobody can, it's all Larry. Yes, he's got a lot of really talented people working there with him and for him. Okay. But that brain, it just generates us. You know, we can all look at the world. We see something. Larry sees things. It's like I said, when he takes out his pen, we go, what do we miss? Um, he sees things from an angle, Matt, that uh, nobody else does.
0: Amazing. So you are had an incredibly uh, uh, prolific year between the book and the movie. You're still a young guy. <laughs> you are still a young guy. And I wonder what is out there for you, Alan. We Books, awards, television, in front of the camera, behind the camera, uh, a uh, a murderer's row of great comedic minds who you've worked with, shared offices with, written with. What's out there? that you haven't done, that you still want to accomplish?
1: A pamphlet. I have not written a brochure. No. Um, there, I, You know something, he, he, here's where I've been really lucky, Matt. I've been afforded the opportunity to come up with an idea and then decide which is the best way it wants to live. Okay, is it a movie, is it a play, or is it just a three-page magazine piece for the New Yorker? So let the material of the idea tell me how it wants to exist. I'd love to write the, um, uh, a musical. I would love to, um, I'd like to do TV again. I'm doing a pilot with Rob Reiner um, and working with Barry Sonnenfeld, the great director. Uh, So I have high hopes for that. I'm co-writing a screenplay with uh, this. I can't even believe Barry Levinson, you know, so, uh, so no matter how old you are, uh, you know, you know, if you play tennis with somebody who's better than you, you rise to that level, you play better than you thought. So if I work with a guy like Barry Levinson, all of a sudden I'm going, Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. I get it. And, and, And the same thing with Billy, any of these people. So I just like the, um, I don't look and say, wow, I'd like to do that because I haven't done it. But I just mentioned the book to a musical because I think that that would be something I'd like to do. I, I, uh, as a, Not to fill a void, but I think I've got some ideas that I would love that kind of collaboration with, um, uh, with a composer and with a lyricist and to have that kind of, once again, it's the process, to have that kind of experience. I, many, many years ago, I um, had the opportunity of writing a short film. This, I, this was for the 25th anniversary of PBS's great performances. And uh, it was a, a seven minute script It was going to be a a mini musical and the music was written by the great Broadway composer, Cy Coleman. And I would go to his office and you talk about Murderer's Row. I'd look on the walls and it's all these Hirschfeld drawings with him and Hal Prince and Mike Nichols and Comden and Green. I'm going, he was one of those guys. And I remember him telling, I said to him, I said, how does this work for you? I says, I know with me. I sit down with my words and I sift through it and I try to make sense of it. I said, what's it like when you write music? And he told me that he had at the time, like a six year old niece who said, uncle Si, do you always have a song in your head? And he says, yeah, I guess I do. And out of the mouths of babes, the six year old niece said, wow, that's great that means you'll never be lonely. And I thought that was the sweetest thing in the world. And I look at people. Yeah, I've worked with Eric Clapton scored a movie that I wrote called The Story of Us. And I watched him write a song right in front of me. He sat on a stool, he said, let me see the scene. He plucked three or four notes, let me see it again. Now it's seven or eight notes again. Now there was a dozen. And he watched it maybe a dozen times. And there was a song existed that didn't exist 10 minutes ago. And I'm just agog, you know. So to be around people who think that way, that their minds are um, attuned to that. It's not this part of the lobe. It's that part of the lobe. And
0: that's the music part, wherever that is. I want that experience. That was a great, great answer. So, just just to wrap up, um, something that I wonder a lot, quite a bit, you know, comedy today and everything in our culture is under such scrutiny, and uh, you know, anytime somebody makes a, a mistake, large, small, or somewhere in the middle, it's called out immediately. Sure. Is it harder today to be funny? You know, we're in such uh, sensitive times where things that I was watching, we were talking about the National Comedy Center and I was watching some of the old roasts, the old, uh, the Friars roast and the Dean Martin roasts, you know, and Rickles was going after then Governor Reagan. And I, I wondered you know, Don, all of his jokes, including about, you know, our own faith, the Jewish faith, but his jokes about Japanese people, about Mexican people, about Black, uh, you know, uh, that would be tough today. And I don't know that Rickles could work in 2021. Do you worry about culture and its impacts on comedy? I worry about it a lot, Matt, and
1: most of my contemporaries do whether they're vocal about it or not. The fact of the matter is it was there was a time and not too long ago that we all made fun of each other. Then we went out to lunch. Okay. Um, the the hypersensitivity now I'm not talking about ill will, and I'm not saying that there isn't, uh, things that have to be changed. Absolutely. But I think it was Tyler Perry said at the Oscars a couple of weeks ago, let's meet in the middle. My hope would be that the pendulum comes back here because the hypersensitivity that there is, for me, the big paradox is that, um, you know, comedy is a unifier. We're all laughing at the same thing with each other. The minute you say you can't do this or you can't do that, you become divisive. That's what be, makes us divisive. It, it, it's not that we're doing it. It's people telling you you can't do it. I I can't help but think, you know, Mel Brooks himself has said, if they would take out all the offensive things that is said in Blazing Saddles, the film would be about six minutes long. All right? Um, we got to loosen up. I'm hoping, yes, change has to happen Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that we got to relax a little bit. I think we've all been through enough. And then there's a way to do this where um, it's not going to be offensive or, or perceived as being offensive. That's my hope, because you are absolutely right. Look, a writer can write anything he or she wants and then you wait for a producer or a network or a studio to say no you can't do that but now there's a certain amount of self-censorship that writers are doing before they put a word down on because you sort of anticipate what the reception is going to be and that's no way to create it should be an uh, it should be a blank page a blank palette and then Once it's down, you go, okay, what are we really going to do here? How are we going to do this? And if you go through the history of everything, especially satire, if you go back to Jonathan Swift with with Sullivan's Travels, do the Marx Brothers, do everybody, okay? Uh, Mort Saul, everyone who's made fun of or made jokes about people. You know, Don Rickles wouldn't stand a chance today. He would not stand a chance today. The um the rat pack. You ever see any of that footage? The stuff they do about Sammy Davis Jr., there's not a chance in hell. So, and these were best friends, and, and and they were clowning around. So I'm I'm praying. And I think there's going to be a time. I can't tell you it's going to be tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be six months from now or a year from now. I don't know that it's going to be okay. Norman Lear will look you in the eye and say, if he went to sell all in the family today, he wouldn't be able to. So that means Archie Bunker would not be part of our culture. And what did Archie Bunker do at the time? He said things and he had an attitude that made us laugh at, at that guy. Okay. A lot of social change because it, comedy can be a reflection and it can also be an influence so you got a character like that you go whoa i got an uncle like that boy that sounds bad (laughs) you know what
0: i'm saying right
1: so so whatever is curative about comedy whatever could be helpful uh we we got to loosen the
0: chains a little bit yeah i agree with you and i sure hope we get back to the middle too well, Alan, thanks so much for doing this. It was an absolute joy. And uh, every success going forward, you are a, a true jewel of a guy. And I've been lucky enough to meet your bride of 41 years, Robin. I think we met down at the Twain Prize years ago in, in D.C. with Mark. And uh, I know how proud you are of your kids and your grandkids. And you're a mention in every way. So thanks for doing this.
1: I hope to see you in person again real soon. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure.